0: Real lives and real young airmen and, and enlisted folks that you're put in charge of and really making a true impact to people's lives on a day to day basis.
1: The one theme, if we could say, captures all of this is care about people.
0: Whether that's, you know, asking about how their day was to, to support on the flight line and solving everyday problems.
1: You have the humility to set yourself aside. You have a leg up, which enables you to have teams that perform under pressure and operate well through change. And it's also the difference between having people who just get the job done because they have to versus the people who get the job done because they want to. They believe in you.
2: Welcome to Long Blue Leadership presented by the U.S. Air Force Academy Association and Foundation. Your host for this edition of Long Blue Leadership is Dr. Doug Lindsay, USAFA class of 92, speaker, author, leadership consultant, and currently serving the Center for Character and Leadership Development as Executive Editor of the Journal of Character and Leadership Development. And now, Dr. Doug Lindsay.
3: My guests today are Allison and Paul Yane, USAFA class of 2015 and 2016, respectively. Allison and Paul are a married couple. Home based in the Washington, D.C. area, and both work at Spencer Stewart, a global executive search and leadership advisory firm as associates in executive search. Both served in the Air Force with distinction, winding up their careers in 2022 as officers in intelligence and maintenance leading large teams. They are accomplished students of leadership and writers, which is how we met Allison and Paul. The pair recently contributed to an article on veterans and leadership in a Spencer Stewart publication. The article featured profiles of 10 prominent CEOs, three of whom are USAFA graduates and currently lead United Airlines, McAfee and Johnstone supply. We'll spend the next few minutes getting to know Allison and Paul, and we'll talk about their work with Spencer Stewart. Then we'll focus on the top five qualities they believe make the best leaders. And finally, we'll ask them to share one or two bits of advice they would give to those who want to be leaders and leaders who want to become even better. Joining us from the D.C. area, Allison and Paul, welcome to the Long Blue Leadership Podcast.
1: Thanks, Doug. We're happy to be here.
3: Hey, Doug. Happy to be here as well. Glad to have you. As we get started, if you don't mind, would you give us a little bit of a backstory on kind of your lives as children before you got to the Academy? What was that like and uh, what was your growing up experience like?
0: Sure, I could start. Um, So I come from an immigrant family. Um, My parents moved to the United States in 1993 when I was about two and a half years old, they moved to Queens, New York. Um, my mom was a pharmacist and my dad was a truck driver. And so um, it was an interesting sort of startup story is what I'd like to call it, um, in the sense that I spent my weekends teaching my parents the the English that I had learned during school and spent, my, spent the weekend doing that for my parents. Um, it was also a little bit of a challenging household as well. Um, Maybe it's a little too much, but my dad was a bit of an alcoholic, um, a lot of stress growing up in this country and not knowing the language and trying to navigate it, being in a completely different environment. Um, so that led to sometimes an unsafe environment, but heavily influenced how I operate and um, how I think, being a problem solver, paying attention to detail, uh, facing adversity, et cetera.
1: I had a bit of a different childhood. I would have what you would describe as an all-American childhood. My mom was a first grade teacher. My dad was an Air Force officer and had two younger brothers close in age. We were all best friends, all loved sports. And we had to be best friends because we moved every, every few years or so, but really taught me how to be resilient, how to adapt to a lot of change in life. And I ended up growing this love for people. Um, I loved meeting new people everywhere I went. I know sometimes it can go the other way where you hate moving, but um, for some reason, I really, I really clung to that.
3: So very different kind of origin stories there, but uh, with those kind of influences and and Paul, you mentioned kind of that some of the challenges you had with that home dynamic and, but also Allison kind of moving around a little bit, how did that translate into wanting to go to the Academy and doing that kind of uh, opportunity? Was that something that's always kind of part of who you were? Alison, you said you like people and was that just part of that idea of service or or how did that all come to be?
1: Yeah, sure. I think I'd always been a very outgoing kid, always driven to be an achiever. Um, so I, this passion for people, I would say it especially started in high school. And I, I prided myself on knowing everyone in the, in the class. So I was, I was my class president and, you know, was friends with the, the dorks and was friends with the popular kids. And um, my, my proudest moment in high school was actually, I was a bench warmer on the varsity basketball team and I, I was voted um, captain of my varsity basketball team. So I would go up against, you know, the star player on the opposing team. I'd come off the bench, <laughs> flip the coin, and then go sit back down on the bench. You know, it was sort of like a Rudy story. They'd throw me in last <laughs> last few minutes of the game. But anyway, really proud of that. And then also saw the service aspect from my dad. And then saw a lot of women in leadership and knew that that's something I could totally do that. I would love to do that. I'd love a challenge. And so, yeah, I would definitely say that all stemmed from my childhood.
0: And then for me, I'd say my, my parents really encouraged me to kind of go out there and learn what's out there and get involved as much as, as much as I can. Uh, We kind of had this rule where in the house we would speak Korean. Um, but then when you're outside of the house, you're speaking English all the time. Um, which is interesting, you know, because my parents wanted to learn the learn the language and get familiar with it. But that made, that basically kind of ingrained in me this idea that there's this whole world of knowledge out there. And there's all these things to do, especially being in a brand new country. Um, so throughout my childhood and growing up, um, I spent a lot of time getting involved in different clubs and different sports. Just because a, I wasn't familiar with it and B, because I wanted to learn it and figure it out. So I did a varying range of things. I did model UN. I tried out the robotics club. I wasn't very good at it, but I, but I tried it. I, I can say that, um, and a couple of different sports, um, that influenced when, when I got to the Academy, cause I tried out for a sport that I never played before. Um, and I ended up playing the whole, the whole, uh, the whole season, um, which is you know pretty interesting. And it was a great, great time to do that. But I, I didn't really know that the Air Force Academy existed. Um, I just kind of knew, Hey, I want to give back to this country. Um, I want to give. I want to be able to serve. I want to be able to give back, and and so I always knew I wanted to give. Um, join join the military, um, and I, I guess that's what kind of led me down the the path of going to the academy. I enlisted first out of high school, um, and I was really really fortunate and lucky to be surrounded by some some key mentors of mine um, that told me that this place called this the Air Force Academy existed in Colorado Springs. You should you should apply. Um, so much so that they were like, hey, don't come to work until you finish your application, <laughs> you know? So um, I was very fortunate to have those folks that championed me, um, again, kind of furthering shape my view of, of leadership um, later on in life.
3: And then Allison, for you, in terms of the academy itself, was it something you were familiar with because of your your dad? Or was it, how did you um, come to know about the academy itself?
1: Yeah, he was not an academy grad. So for me, I... You know, my my junior year I was considering options uh junior year of high school and I heard about the Air Force Academy. I knew about it from my dad who had friends who had gone to the academy and I stepped into the junior ROTC in my high school and said, "Hey, I'd love I let's i like a pamphlet on the Air Force Academy." And they're like, "Sit down, you know, what sports are you in?" And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, just want a pamphlet." Um but but anyway, that sort of started the process. And once I started the application process, which is as a lot of uh, listeners know, it's just an intensive application process and you feel like you've achieved something when you submit it. So I was really excited, you know, to, to have that opportunity. And um, yeah, I just, I knew it was right for me, especially as someone who is an achiever.
3: So what was that like when you got here then? Uh, So the kind of very accomplished in high school, a lot of activity, really busy. And then you kind of that meets reality when you actually kind of get here and in processing and do that. What was, what was that like once you kind of got here in terms of was it confirming or affirming of what you were doing or was there some questions about what did I get myself into?
1: I loved it. And I had watched a lot of videos about basic training, but I have a really funny story on my in processing day. I was ready to conquer it, you know, got through all the screaming on the footprints and I was like, I just got to make it to my room and I'll have some roommates and I can commiserate. We can do this together. And I get to my dorm room and my two roommates, one of them wouldn't speak to me. She was too nervous to talk. The other one had a, started hyperventilating and she couldn't calm down. And so I, I will say both of them are incredible officers still in the Air Force today. Um, both made it through. But in that moment, I said to myself, I'm going to have to do this. This is going to be me. We're going to, you know, and so it was a little bit of a reality check once I got to that moment.
0: Yeah, for me, I I would say I-Day and in processing and basic training at the academy felt in an odd way familiar, right? Because I had gone through enlisted basic training uh, and then I went to the prep school and went through basic training there. So by the time I-Day came around, I kind of knew, okay, I'm going to get yelled at. They're going to break us down and go through this whole process. But I felt this need or this kind of calling to help my other classmates because many of which were coming, uh, many of whom were coming straight out of high school. And so even as simple as rolling socks and cleaning your room and hospital corners, those are things that I wouldn't say I've would been doing every day, right? Once you get out of basic training, but something I was familiar with at the very least. And so that desire to kind of um, share what I had known, even if it's something as simple as rolling socks and folding your t-shirts in the right way um, to, meet the, to meet the measurements, I, I figured, you know, this is something that I know, this is something that could be helpful in some way, shape or form, let me, let me go ahead and share that. Um, And so my whole like early stages or the early days at the Academy, that's what I felt called to do um, sharing that knowledge.
3: Both of you, different kind of unique experiences as you work through the 47 months of the Academy, right? These, you're exposed to these new things. What would you say are kind of the, the, the couple of maybe crucible moments or the important moments or impacts that the academy had on you during that time in terms of your development, not just as a person, but as a, as a leader.
0: So I had never played a game of soccer in my, in my entire life. Um, maybe it's because I, I grew up in New York and there's not many fields. Maybe that's, that's the reason why, but I never played it. And so when I got, this was during the prep school, when I got to the prep school, one of my, my buddies in, in my unit or my squadron said, hey, you should try out for this team. Um, you seem athletic, you like to run. Why don't you come out to the field and try it out? Um, I did and and I, and I enjoyed it. I had no touch. I didn't know how to kick a soccer ball the right way, but I knew how to run. Um, and I knew that I was competitive, um, and sort of headstrong in that way. So I would say that was a highlight and I, I got lucky because the person that would be starting in the position that I was in as as a left back ended up getting injured. So I found myself in the situation of, okay, um, I basically know how the, how to play this sport. Um, I, I can listen, I can listen to my coach's advice, but now now I found myself in a, in a starting position. I wasn't again, one repeat, like I wasn't very good. Um, but I felt like what an opportunity to be able to play this sport at this level, having never played it before. Um, and the Academy certainly, you know, only a place like that where you're given an opportunity like that. Right. Um, so, um, that was like a pretty big moment for me, a very proud moment. Maybe like a low light for me was about halfway through the academy. Um, I was going through some personal things that I maybe lost sight of and I let it affect my academics, um, particularly one class. And I ended up failing a course. Um, and at the end of the semester, as you know, when you fail a course, you go through the, the board process and you kind of go through, hey, you're going to make it through and you're, and you're looked at. Um, and I almost got disenrolled and I had my my act advisor, someone you may know, Doug, um, but he really championed me, um, and he said, "Hey, it's okay; these these things happen." Um, kind of brought me back down to earth and went through the board process. Ended up, obviously, not getting disenrolled, but it was a big, it was a big tough pill for me to swallow. Of hey, um, there are things in life that you need to focus on and make sure they're they're squared away and good to go, and ensure that it doesn't leak into other areas of your life, it's particularly if. Um, if there are high stakes involved, right, like enrollment at the Air Force Academy.
3: Yeah, and I think that's an important part, right? Because we tend to focus on maybe the the positives, right, and we don't realize that without those kind of crucible moments, those those kind of lower points, that you know that helps frame out who we are, our perspective, and and who knows that opportunity. It you know, sounds like it kind of changed your trajectory a little bit about kind of reassessing what am I doing here, what do I really want to get out of it, right?
0: Yeah, certainly. Uh, Well, I certainly cared more about academics after the fact, but it was it was a good lesson of hey, this is real, you know. And I think to your point of sometimes you could be flying high and in a really good place, and you don't realize these little little areas of your life um, that may be taking a toll um, and maybe require your attention. I think it's a it's a good leadership theme as well um, of there there are different areas. Um, it, it, It takes a lot. And it, and it takes a lot of bandwidth. And so making sure you take the time to take a step back and allot your effort um, and your capacity in the areas that require it so that you are healthy and you are good to go so that you can be present.
3: I had a, a similar uh, experience one of my semesters, uh, my first semester sophomore year, I I came in at a two point oh oh, and it was really close enough to the sun, so to speak, that that was my crucible moment. I'm like, uh, I, that that was a real evaluation moment for me to go. Okay, I need to I need to do some things differently if I want to keep making this happen. Uh, Allison, how about you? Maybe some, some high and and low point for you as well.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite things about the Air Force Academy is just the incredible opportunities that it affords cadets. So I. I did the jump program. I did an immersion trip to Poland. I did a language trip to Morocco, a DC trip for a history class. I was on the women's club lacrosse team and got to travel all over the place, marched in inauguration day parade. So all of those were just incredible moments. I would say the biggest thing that had an impact on my leadership is I, I was able to be the cadet squadron commander my senior year. I'll say that peer leadership is the hardest Thing. And I think that being a cadet, anything, you know, a leader of cadets is harder than any officer leadership position I had, um, probably because there's, you know, formal structure within the military. There's there's a natural chain of command. But when you're leading your peers, you know, you have to live with them every day, too. So it's it's a total exercise in dealing with people, interpersonal skills, um, you know, and you're it, It was the greatest leadership gift I think the Academy afforded me. And then the low light for me. So I was the wing command chief, which was, um, you know, the top junior position my junior year. And I did something called Weiss advice. My last name was Weiss at the time. And I would go up on the staff tower and I would give everyone morning advice at 6 a.m. before their breakfast, you know, something like be a good friend today. You know, you never know what your t- your teammate is going through. And ha- this was at a time where there was social media that was allowed and people could, you know, t- talk, chat about whatever is going on at the academy and uh, I would say about half the wing was indifferent, a quarter loved the Weiss advice and a quarter hated the Weiss advice. <laughs> and so I got that direct feedback and so it was a great lesson to me that not everyone's gonna love everything that you do, and especially as a person who really who loves people, who who wants to be friends with everyone, um, learning that sometimes as a leader you have to make tough decisions or you have to do things that maybe not everyone will be on board with. Um, but I, that was a, you know, it, it was a great lesson for me at that time that I carried on throughout my officer career.
3: Taking those experiences you had at the academy, how did that translate into saying, "Hey, I want to be a"? A maintenance officer. I want to be an intel officer.
1: Yeah, and for me, I loved my political science and international relations classes, and that drew me into an interest um, in the intelligence field and just really synthesizing data about the world, understanding what drives our adversaries, what motivates people. Again, um, and and then ultimately, you know, proposing solutions, actionable solutions to leaders to make decisions. So. Really um enabling operations, which I loved it would get me as close to operations as possible without actually flying in a plane. I tried power flight, threw up every time, so <laughs> knew that being a pilot was not for me um but but yeah, just that foundation in my classes actually at the academy drew me into intelligence
0: well i I chose that I chose to be a maintenance officer I put that as my as my as my top choice um early in my first year when we were, when we were putting in our preferences, I was thinking through, okay, what's, what's the career field where um, that'll provide me sort of the best opportunity to do exactly what I enjoy doing, which is championing others and um, solving problems um, and doing it soon. Um, and so, uh, and obviously my, me gravitating towards leadership opportunities and, and learning about the world kind of pointed me towards the direction of, uh, of, of maintenance because I knew that um, maintenance is a tough is a tough leadership environment, especially as a brand new lieutenant. You're kind of thrown out, thrown in there, uh, leading dozens plus people, um, and there's a lot of problems to solve from the operational side. And so, okay, this is I think this is where I belong. I spoke to a number of different maintenance officers at the time There were AOCs, um, some some academic instructors as well, and, and so I knew okay, this is this is where I want to go, and I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I love the environment of being a thrown into somewhere where there's high stakes um, and you, and it's on, it's on you and your team to figure something out and it's real lives and real young airmen and and enlisted folks that you're put in charge of um, and, and being able to be there uh, relying on senior NCOs um, and really making a true impact to people's lives on a day-to-day basis for the better, whether that's, you know, asking about how their day was to, Um, championing them because they need time off and and managing their schedule to make sure that they have what they need to be best supported to um, to supporting the flight line and solving everyday problems. Um, We don't have to go too much into the details there, but uh, it's it's a tough career field operationally. um, and, And I gravitated towards that.
3: And I do want to uh, ask a question about um, uh, how you all got together. So, um, class of fifteen, class of sixteen, both at the academy at the at the same time, and now, and and you're married. So, we can uh, you tell us a little bit about how uh, that started or how you met? I first
1: remember meeting Paul when he walked into an interview that I was holding for my um, my second in command as a I was a cadet squadron commander. So, I was looking for my superintendent. And Paul interviewed for that role it was the first time I had met him. Um, I was dating someone else at the time, so I had no romantic interest in him, but um, that was the first time I remember meeting him and I hired him. So he worked mm-hmm. with me for a semester and then we became great friends after that.
0: Hmm. Um, I think we, ha- we had talked about uh, earlier when Allison at six, o- six o'clock in the morning was sharing Weiss advice up on the staff tower um before breakfast when everyone's just trying to make it through the day (laughs) um i learned obviously learned of allison from from a distance and i had a lot of respect for her obviously still have a ton of respect for her now um and then when i found out that i was moving into 30 um and i was applying to be her um superintendent i was like wow i would love to get to know this individual and would love to even, even more so to work for her um so there's this kind of is running joke where our relationship started with Allison being my boss, and she still is today. Um, very much so. <laughs> and so um that's sort of like our, our 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 founding founding story, if you will.
3: And then Paul, a question for you. So the the Weiss advice uh uh that Allison talked about, what was your reaction sitting in uh in Mitchell Hall hearing that uh that information?
0: I personally enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> I think Al, Al had mentioned that maybe like the, maybe a quarter of the people really, really enjoyed it, but I, I truly did. I, I think sometimes um, Al's very good at telling you what you need to hear. Um, and certainly in our, in our, in our marriage. And so um, I I really appreciated that even at the early waking morning hours of the day um, that Allison was getting up there and saying, some true hard things of like, be a friend, support somebody, be there for one another. If you have a tough test at the end of the day, you'll be done with that. I mean, just like simple things like that, um, might not sound like a lot at the surface level, but it really hits home because it's just real and it's true and it's, and it's honest. And so, um, to answer your your question bluntly, I, I loved it.
3: The Academy and the experiences that you kind of talked a little about really, springboarded you in those careers because you obviously had success early on in, in, in maintenance and intel what was it that you think you got out of the academy that really kind of helped set the stage for you there i think i would go back
1: to the whole peer leadership thing the fact that the fact that i had already been leading you know leading people honestly and, as a senior and then went straight into you know my my job as an intel officer. I was leading a floor of seventy five airmen um, at a, on a DGS ops center, and and it was just awesome. I just had all these people around me. I knew I knew what it, I knew how to interact with people. I knew you know. And then you you even have an operational mission then. So then it just becomes even more important. And I think that really set the stage. I mean, all of the character and leadership development that were taught at the Air Force Academy all of that becomes second nature. You know, that's nothing that we have to learn at that point. And and being that kind of leader for people, I think really helped me springboard as just a second lieutenant into a successful intel career.
0: The wealth of resources that the Air Force Academy has, even if it's just walking down the hallway um, and talking to your AOC who had spent probably 10 plus years in a specific career field and knows people in other career fields. And so the networking aspect that the Air Force Academy provides is huge and and being able to literally just walk down the hallway, or maybe it's your, maybe it's your instructor for one of your classes that came out of a career field to teach at the Air Force Academy. So um, utilizing that network and just knowing the wealth of knowledge and resources there has been, has been huge.
3: It's just always interesting to me to see the path that people choose because I certainly had my path and I found my way through, but it's it's just very interesting how personal that is. Even though we all kind of go through a similar process, how we personalize that is just really, uh, I think, interesting as part of our our journeys. And so you're on active duty, you're having a lot of success, and then both decide to, to transition uh, to something different. So can you talk me a little bit about what that transition was like in terms of Kind of getting into the space that you're in now, kind of more the leader development space with uh, with where you're at right now. So we decided
0: to transition out at the same time, which, by the way, many many of our colleagues and close friends thought we were crazy to be separating at the same time uh, due to the sheer amount of risk there. But you know, we t- we took a leap of faith. We attended a career conference through a junior military officer um, hiring and transitioning company. Um, and when we attended this conference, Allison and I, we really kind of focused on the company culture um, and the mission of the cult, uh, mission of the company. Um, that's because we're coming out of the military. You know, um, we, we naturally gravitate towards companies that had a clear and defined mission orientation or goal. Um, something that is founded on a, a clear values that aligned it, that aligned with the things that we, we felt we aligned with. And so um, we, both came across Spencer's. Actually, we were, when we attended the career conference, they told us, you know, don't really lean in, don't really lead with, hey, you guys are married, you know, (laughs) Um, because we would, we were actually interviewing with very similar companies and there was a decent amount of overlap. They told us to attend as individuals, rack and stack them in your, in your brain uh, individually and see where their alignment is with location, with career fields and um, in different areas. Um, And we, we came across um, an executive search firm, Spencer Stewart, and we just absolutely head over heels fell in love with the company culture and the, and the type of work that it is and it's and it certainly aligned i guess i'll just speak for myself in, in this area but it, it aligned with how i think um and and how i approach my day to day which is championing other people um, giving people a chance and solving problems and so being an executive search that's that's essentially what you get to do um you're helping your clients solve problems and in this case, it would be leadership gaps, whether it's succession planning, maybe someone's retiring, et cetera. Um, and you're talking to people and potential candidates for a role that maybe otherwise wouldn't have landed on their on their radar in the past. And so being able to learn their story, um, figure out what their career goals are, and if there's an alignment with where they are trying to go with an opportunity that that, I, that a company can offer, then great,
1: let's talk about it. I agree. Everything that Paul says is accurate. And maybe just to answer just the beginning of your question, why we made the decision. So we we were both hard charging on active duty and really loved the service. For for us, we just had decided, okay, we're going to be in a position where one of us will have to deploy, the other will have to go back to teach. We we had this. Uh, we we could see our career paths taking a divergent. Um, you know, path, I guess you'd say. And so we decided, let's just see what else is out there and let's see what we can do. Um, Paul had some experience, you know, from his dad and the business experience he's had in this country for me, brand new, had no, you know, don't need, didn't even know what corporate life was like. And I said, if not now, then when? And we made the leap. And, and everything Paul said about Spencer Stewart's why we joined the culture is incredible. And, um, we, we've really enjoyed our time so far in the year and a half we've been here.
3: Or what was it that really kind of helped you kind of land successfully on the other side? Because we know sometimes people struggle a little bit there sometimes in terms of what do I want to do?
0: We were doing it together. Um, and so we naturally just had someone across the dinner table championing each other um, and going through the same experience together. And so being able to, talk through ideas talk through all the different scenarios and just having an ear that would listen um was really really helpful for for us and and i wouldn't say that's 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 the only way but just having a partner through that i think kind of tells a broader story of of um making sure that you surround yourself with folks around you that that have been through something like this before or um or is going through it and, and being able to talk through things and act as a sounding board was, was really helpful for us, particularly.
1: We are also huge proponents of transition companies, especially for junior military officers. We would have had no idea. And we, we partnered with Cameron Brooks, who spent a whole year in their program. They helped us translate our military skills into corporate speak, um, helped us with resumes. Um, and then we, we had about 20 different companies that were aligned to our experiences that we would have never thought we would be qualified for. And if it were not for a program like that, I'm not sure we would have known. And and not only that, we had all these different industries we could compare. So Paul and I got to say, all right, do we wanna do manufacturing? Do we wanna do banking? You know, Do we wanna be in professional services? And we ultimately chose that incredible experience overall. Any regrets? None.
3: No, that's great.
0: No, No regrets. <laughs>
3: You talked about executive search and doing some of that. Can you walk us through a little bit what that looks like? At
0: our firm, we're we're in executive search, and so that's actually a world we didn't know existed prior to going to the Cougar conference and, and starting in this in this firm. But but basically, we help large, mid to large um, size companies on the public side and 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 then on the private side as well. We help leaders sort of make career moves, or we help clients solve their internal, um, internal, internal succession and leadership planning. Um, what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, just to kind of maybe break it down is a a lot of calls, a lot of internal and external conversations, uh, where you're running projects or searches internally and just making sure we're following the process. And we're we're making sure we're managing things internally, hitting all the dates for the deliverables and then externally, lots of meetings with clients, providing them updates on on market feedback. Um, and also, this is probably the bulk of the bulk of the amount of time that we spend is having conversations with potential candidates um, to make sure that um, we go through the, the full assessment process and doing our full due diligence to ensure that the folks that we would be potentially putting forth on, on a search or on an opportunity are, 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 are aligned well.
1: Yeah. And then Paul and I are both in different practices within the firm. So I'm in the industrial practice, which means that I help recruit, assess and place executives in the, in any domain within industrial. So that could be oil and gas. That could be, um, you know, manufactured products, engineered products, aerospace and defense, distribution at large. Um, it could be anything within the industrial sector. Anywhere from a vice president level up to a CEO, Um, and then Paul's in the financial officer practice.
0: And I'm in I'm in more of a functional practice. We call it financial officer practice, or um, or basically CFOs. So most of my work, if not basically all of my work, is with finance executives. Um, So CFOs and key deputies, and that's since it's functional, um, I basically spend a lot of my time across many different industries um, because I think CFO speak is pretty transferable from from one company to another, from one industry to another, uh, with the exception of a few that are just, um, that are different. But um, so I guess that's like the difference between a, a focused industry versus a a, uh, a functional practice.
3: What you talked about, that idea of being able to uh, connect with people, serve with people, influence, uh, championing others, solving problems. It sounds like you've kind of found your space on the other side in terms of what it is that you really enjoy. Kind of what your purpose is. Is that fair to say? Absolutely.
1: Yes. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why we why we love it so much is we we really feel that we've landed in a place where we can utilize all these skills. And also, when we're assessing talent. One reason that it's just great being, you know, having been a leader in the military is that when these executives are talking to us about change management, change leadership within their organization, we don't know it conceptually; we know it practically from our time in service. So we know if they're just blowing smoke, (laughs) (laughs) or you know, um, so we found that very valuable, and um, and it's really cool. I mean, I think, and this is part of uh, you you alluded to our, our veterans article, we just having access to folks like Scott Kirby, Greg Johnson, who know of these search firms, because that's how, you know, that's how they hire people, basically. Um, so it's it's been really neat, not only just being able to practice something that we love, but then also being able to talk to really incredible people.
3: Yeah. And and I think you hit on that piece of being able to not just talk about it, but kind of share your experiences. So being able to kind of really understand um you know at, at different levels in terms of what it is that they're looking for what that means what change management actually looks like in a large organization because even though you may not have been at the at the the go level instituting those challenges, you were at the implementation level of much of that change and and what that looks like and i think that gives a different uh, credibility of being able to say hey yeah i've kind of been there done that and 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 talk about it that way whether it's a cfo or industrial or whatever that is right absolutely with that in mind what are some of the challenges or uh, mistakes that you see leaders making today? Uh, just kind of curious in what you're seeing um, and what you can talk about, and then we'll kind of talk about maybe some more of the effective things on the other side.
0: Maybe it'll be trends or, or sometimes things that kind of speak out to us as being uh, being on the search slide. So one of the things that I know that um, if if an individual jumps from one company to another company too frequently, um, and I think that they, that could be that could mean a lot of things, right? It could mean that um, an individual is, you know, kind of in an ecosystem of a, of a private equity firm, and they're buying and selling companies and moving from one one company to another, which which is fine, and th- that you can speak to that. But if it's not that situation, um, then it sort of signals that someone maybe hasn't done their full due diligence on an on an opportunity before before taking on that role, um, and so that's something that I would say doesn't usually doesn't reflect too positively. And in and my advice, I think like springing from that would be, um, and I've been, we've talked to plenty of folks that were where this happens where maybe they land, they find themselves in a, in a situation or in a company that they might not like or a specific role that they might not like. It doesn't mean that they have to leave the company. Right. Um, it's not like, um, it doesn't mean that there's, there aren't other things that they can try. And so, my advice from that particular mistake would be see what else is out there within that company. Because the consistency of moving from one, one scope of responsibilities to another within the same company, um, I think, reflects a lot more positively than, hey, I, I was there for eight months and I didn't like it and I left. A better story would be I was there for about a year. I wasn't enjoying my job. Um, I tried I meant I moved here within this part of the, the company. And that's where I really found my passion for X um, and then expanding from there.
1: Maybe some other ones that we see um, people getting experience outside of their respective functions. So as they move up within organizations, um, you know, Paul's got a better example of this with finance. Maybe you can go into that with, with folks who... Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so being at, I think this is just the product of being in the in a functional practice where um, where I'm basically talking to a lot of different CFOs of varying um, in varying different industries but finance I think has this history of maybe being a little bit siloed it's very much not the case anymore right um, where you have folks that maybe take uh, start out as an, as an accountant right or maybe start in a big four uh, professional services firm and they work their way through accounting and audit etc Um I think the best ones are the ones that um that maybe expand beyond just their specific uh function. So what that what I mean by that is maybe this is someone that is um that has an accounting background but takes the time to learn other aspects and areas of the business beyond what they see um behind the numbers on finance. So in like a manufacturing organization that would mean getting close to the business, getting close to the manufacturing floor, getting close to the product and getting close to the product and really understanding, touching, feeling and seeing the product that their business is manufacturing um, because then it really helps that particular individual really translate what the what the numbers they are working through and managing and what that really means to their client or customer base. And those that are, be able, that are better able to speak to that, uh, I have found that are are the ones that tend to be more operationally oriented, the ones that can speak more about the business and not just finance.
1: Another big mistake that we see, maybe the biggest mistake is burning bridges. And you hear that at the academy, never burn a bridge. Within executive search, we extensively vet people for our clients. So even people that, that look phenomenal on paper, people who show up to an interview and they have an incredible interview, great results on paper. Um, if you've, if you've got colleagues or peers or bosses that you have, have, you know, have a bad reputation with, um, that we will find it, we will hear it. (laughs) And, and so it, it all comes back to being a person of character, you know, and, and we see that does burn people sometimes. And you also see things that the mistakes that leaders make when it comes to interviewing for jobs, which is not being prepared you know, not presenting in a professional manner. We've had people show up late to board meetings and been completely taken off the list as a possible candidate. Um, So you see all of those things.
3: Allison, you had mentioned something about character and being a person of character with that. Are you seeing a more... Interest in that area as you're going through your executive search in terms of not just about what it is that you do, but it's kind of how you're showing up. You because you both mentioned the idea of not you know not being siloed, being broader about that, understanding jumping around, kind of the footprints that you're leaving behind, or or burning bridges. That kind of speaks to that idea of character. So it sounds like that that's um, resonating more with folks. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, absolutely. And. I wondered that when I went into corporate America, if we would see these companies that we work with, these client companies, you know, would they focus on? Are they looking for people who can just drive results within a company? And I'm telling you, more often than not, we have calls where most of it is we are looking for someone who knows how to lead people. They're going to have to come in here and, and you know, do a lot of change management. In some cases, in some cases, it's revamp the entire team. Um, you hear that quite a lot, and it's also something we really value at Spencer Stewart at this firm. We screen for character. that's one of our four um the four things we screen for when we assess people. so yes, there's quite an emphasis on it, and it's awesome
0: and I would add that when it comes to just pure um I'll just speak about the practice that I'm in, but like pure finance capability especially in like a public company, right? Like that is, it's all public. So you can see like the public filings, you could look at their 10K and look at their proxy and see their company performance and ensure that that performance is there and it's measurable. But more often than not, what we'll find is someone that could be, that maybe potentially you know be a high performer based off of just pure numbers and pure you know, historical performance. Will maybe meet members of the board, or meet maybe meet other members of the team in which they'd be working with on a day to day basis. And the feedback would be, hey, not someone that we can see ourselves getting along with and working with on a day to day basis, um, or not someone I just can feel a connection or something like that. And that usually just means that they're good, they're a good finance professional, or they're good at what they do, um, but not really sure that this is someone that they would, you know, that would. Inspire others of the company, and so to Allison's point, um, I think at the end of the day, there will always be like an underlying, like baseline of capabilities. But what brings someone to the next level um, is is one's character.
3: I kind of transition us a little bit to um, the article that you all uh, worked on, where you looked at the top CEOs, and you know that idea of what kind of sets them apart. I know that the article focused a lot on the kind of the veterans and leadership, but what is it that you're seeing that? you're starting to go, here are kind of maybe the top three, four, five things that we're seeing that really make those effective leaders uh, different than everybody else. I could talk to
1: the first two and then Paul can talk to the last three. Um, So kind of tying into that article, you'll see that I'll just say broad brush. The one thing, and it's what we've talked about most of this podcast is just interpersonal skills, how much of an importance that that is. And it's not groundbreaking, but it's it's very real, and it underpins most, if not all other qualities that you know that these top performing CEOs all have um, and so the first one that that was also highlighted in the article is a team first mentality. so it's about as simple as it gets. It's you know having a team with you. like can you bring the team along? like is the team a part of a part of um, your mission and your story? And sometimes when we talk to people, If they're all about themselves, or if they can't describe how their team, you know, how they've impacted their team or how they brought the team along, um, you know, it's very obvious and very clear. And it's not, there's a lot of culture change that happens in these organizations. And if you can't have a team first mentality, that won't necessarily happen. So that would be the first one. The second is humility, being able to understand that you're not the smartest person in the room, but having the, the strength to to make a decision when you need to, but also making sure you're valuing all opinions, and doing that. So humility is the second one.
0: Another one. This is actually something that uh, Scott had Scott Kirby, um, the CEO of United Airlines, that had he he had mentioned um, when we spoke to him um, as we were working towards our article. But he basically he talked about how folks that come out of the military have no quit. You know, um, and when we when we asked him to expand on that, he talked about how. When someone is asked um, whether or not they're willing to potentially make the ultimate sacrifice for this country, um, any other ask following that um, in and out of the military becomes, I don't want to say easy, but it's going to fall short of it. Right. Um, and so there's this idea of being resilient um, and understanding how to perform under pressure when there are high stakes. And so I think that would be the the key third theme there. Um or quality is being resilient in tough times um, and knowing how to perform under pressure um, when when the stakes are high. Um, And then the next one is maybe uh, stakeholder management. I think that's a very common thing that we would hear both uh, in the military and and out of the military. Um, Understanding and having the ability uh, to work with a variety of different people. Um, And I think it kind of goes to that point of being broader than just what your function is. Um, Understanding what um, what one decision does to the rest of the organiza- organization and how it affects others around, um, others around you in, in the military. There's so much like connectivity between, between, um, maybe like the squadron or flight or, or group or wing level that it naturally just happens. But out, out in the corporate world, I think it's sometimes, uh, you can get siloed and you might not see like the direct translation of how decisions are uh, affect other people. So being able to understand. Who are the, uh, in both internal and exter- ex- external, st- uh, stakeholders is, is important. And I think the, the fifth one, Allison already talked about the change management. Um, that's, uh, I don't even want to say it's like a, like a common phrase because it, it's almost accepted or it's almost like, um, what's the, what's the phrase I'm looking for here? It's almost, um, like you have to have it, <laughs> you know, uh, in today's day and age where there is so much change, things are moving faster, um, than ever before. Um, especially with with AI and um, just incredible technologies that are, that are that are out there, it's a very fast moving world. And so, being able to understand that that's happening, um, and being able to understand how that well, how that translates internal to internally to one's organization is is important.
1: When it comes to change management as well, one of the key questions we ask are the people we assess is, "Where was the business when you came in?" And what have you achieved since then? So it's so it's that, where was it? Where is it now? And how did you do it? And so that's one of the ways that we assess for change management.
3: What I'm encouraged about is that those are all things that I can get actually better on. Understanding humility. It may be difficult to kind of step back and do that, but each one of those five are are things that I, I think you can actually get better on, right? You can sit there and invest some time in and go, I'm not where I want to be. But I can do that. Is that fair to say? Yes.
0: Uh, no one is perfect in any of these areas. It takes practice and it takes time. And oftentimes we'd, we'd be speaking with folks or um, we're on the phone or in a, in a meeting um, where we realize someone will maybe have that introspection to look back and say, okay, this is an area that I'm not good at. Maybe it's team building and they maybe they're 15, 20 years in their career and they're like, you know what? I need more experience building a team. What's an opportunity at this company, in my respective company, where I have the opportunity to do that? And and then seeking that out and putting it into practice is is a key thing um, of just understanding. Maybe it just kind of stems from the humility piece of, I'm not the best at everything, and there's all these areas that I need to improve on. But uh, to your point, Doug, um, these are all things that that can be practiced in in real time.
3: As you are assessing them and as you're looking at it, whether it be from the industrial side or the uh, CFO, are you finding that these leaders are receptive to the feedback that you're giving them in terms of maybe some of those areas where they're where they're not where they need to be? Are, are are you seeing an openness and a willingness to lean in and learn about that?
1: It's interesting you say that because if when when they are open to hearing it, they're showing humility. You know, you assess that just in the way that they interact with you as as a person. You know, are they too busy for you? Are they, you know, um. We do often get people ask us questions, you know, how can I be better? I mean, you talk to executives all day, you know, what, you know, how can I be better? How, you know, what, how do I present myself better, et cetera. I think, you know, if you meet a real stinker, then they, <laughs> then it's probably, they're probably not going to be as receptive to things like that. But um, that's just my experience.
0: And there are, there are candidates for particular roles you know on on any any given day there's a there's a high volume right so um what that what that means is not everybody's going to be able to get the job that they that they want and that's just the fact of life and so the ones that come back and say hey i know i was a finalist or maybe i wasn't a finalist what feedback do you have for me how could i've done better um going to speaking to allison's point about being having that level or, or having that ounce of humility to say, okay, I didn't get this, but there's got to be a reason why. What are those areas? Is it, is it the team building? Is it, did I not share enough about change management? Uh, did I not, you know, talk about a certain result or maybe it was how I presented myself and showed up to the meeting? Um, they ask for that feedback. And I think that also has to do with our firm and being at our company because we have the agency and our, both our clients and our candidates put that trust in us and they look to us for that advice Um, And we'll be transparent, A, because we have to be, and and B, because they need it. Um, And it's all about uplifting others and providing the feedback to others so that they can get to where they're trying to go.
3: That whole idea of humility is just kind of really resonating. I do a lot of uh, executive coaching, and there's a really fundamental difference when someone shows up. Wanting to learn and you know, hey, this is wrong. That you know, that's not that's not how I you know really am. And so that kind of that humility to be able to sit back and go, what is this information telling me that's going to help me as a as a leader?
0: Maybe I'll start by saying if if you're at Esafa and you're currently a cadet working towards graduation, or you're you're an alumni and already graduated, you you likely all already are a leader and probably a good one. (laughs) And so um, maybe that's like a good baseline to start, but. Al and I, we kind of went back and forth thinking about this one, and 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 trying to figure out how do we distill both our personal, individual, personal lives, our our combined uh, military experience, and our combined experience in, in, in the corporate world and executive search. Um, and, and we thought about it a little bit further, and I'll, I'll let Al share her.
1: We're a little bit like a broken record here, but the one theme, if we could say, captures all of this is care about people. And if you care about people, your interpersonal skills are likely decent. You have the humility to set yourself aside. You have a leg up on stakeholder management, which enables you to have teams that perform under pressure and operate well through change. And it's also the difference between having people who just get the job done because they have to versus the people who get the job done because they want to, they believe in you and they believe in the mission. And so if you are good at caring about people, if you just care about people in general, um, you'll get there. And that's what, that would be our advice.
3: If folks want to find out more about what you're doing or about the article that we referred to in the uh, podcast, where can they go to find out that information?
0: Um, simply just go to spencerstewart.com. Um, that's our firm's website. It'll clearly outline different intellectual capital pieces that we've written as a firm in the past. Um, and it's historical as well. So we'll provide insights on certain industries and certain functional areas in terms of trends or things that we see. Um, and it also tell, tell you, um, how our firm is broken down as well. So if there's a particular industry that you're, that you're interested in learning about, it'll point you in the right direction in terms of um, folks that work in that specific practice. Or if you wanna reach Allison and I individually to talk to us about the work that we do, feel free to find us on uh, on LinkedIn.
3: Thank you all for your insights and the work that you're doing in terms of helping to uh, continue to mold and develop leaders and getting them into the right uh, locations. And we appreciate you being on the Long Blue Leadership Podcast today. Thanks, Thanks so
2: much. Thank you for listening to Long Blue Leadership. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe, share it with your family and friends, and post it to your social channels. Long Blue Leadership is a production of the Long Blue Line podcast network and presented by the U.S. Air Force Academy Association and Foundation. The views and opinions of the guests and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Air Force, Air Force Academy, Academy Association and Foundation, its staff or management. The podcast drops every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. Subscribe to Long Blue Leadership on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Tune in plus Alexa and all your favorite podcast platforms. Search at Air Force Grads on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more for show announcements and updates. And visit LongblueLeadership.org for past episodes and more Long Blue Line Podcast Network programming.